3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. And here we are with probably our fifth visitor to our new offices here at LSX at 285 Lennox Street, Richmond. If you do want to drop in and see a co-working space, uh, that is where we are these days, out of the CBD, but enjoying working amongst accountants and interior designers. There's even a crew here who specialise in productivity. So, yeah, that's what we like, productivity. Ah, So, yes, our visitor today is Stephanie Melker, who's from the University of Toronto and a post-grad student there. And, Stephanie, you've taken an interesting journey on your pathway to... Yeah, I mean, I don't get often enough to say this to someone who's who's taken an interest in land value tax and looked into it a little deeper. Yeah, hi, it's great to be here. Um, so I worked in Melbourne for almost five years working in housing and homelessness and took an interest in urban planning. So I'm now doing a Master's of Urban Planning at the University of Toronto. And I have taken a course, housing markets course, and came across land value tax and yeah, I've done a bit of research and looked into it. And yeah, it's been an interesting pathway to kind of have a look into it and try and figure it out. I mean, I'm no economist, so it's been a really interesting kind of exploration of a new a new way to think about things. And it yeah, it seems quite appealing to me. So it's been good. And it almost seems like more planners are getting interested in these concepts of value capture and recycling the the value of of public investments, there's more interest in planning than what we really see from economic students. I think the thing about it is that housing affordability stuff, a lot of people, especially doing the program at, um, at the University of Toronto, are interested in housing affordability and planning and how those two things interact. So that's kind of the pathway towards reading about LVT and, and trying to figure it out and trying to figure out how it fits in with council and municipal decision making and, and how how councils can be involved and governments can be, in, be involved in, in improving housing affordability because similarly with Melbourne, Toronto is, is really struggles with their housing affordability um, as well. Yeah, so I'm just doing the sums and I remember, what, seven years ago when I started this show, it was probably, uh, you know, the median income to buy a median house was probably four or five and now when I'm doing the sums uh, for one income earner, uh, it's probably 10 times that median to uh, to be able to afford a house. I mean, what sort of multiples are we looking at in Toronto? Uh, how much is it for a two-bedroom home or apartment? Sadly, I'm not really in the market for one, so uh <laughs> haven't haven't looked that closely but i think it's it's quite similar i mean you hear a lot of astronomical prices there despite a real um, condo boom happening in toronto like it's really known for its um, this real boom in condominiums being built there i mean downtown is just full of full of new buildings new housing and yet people are still really struggling buy properties, but also rental is, is incredibly expensive. I think I think on a similar level, although some some people say that it's more expensive there, especially in in comparison to incomes. I think our minimum wage here is much better than it is it is there. So 
I think that certainly makes a difference as well. And so you, you, you're hinting there at this housing supply meme and all you know, through the last decade or so, it's been all about uh, this land supply shortage and this land supply crisis and how if we only just sprawled a bit further or rezoned most of the CBD into these 40-storey apartment blocks that housing affordability will be solved. Has that sort of political uh, reform agenda sort of been pushed uh, by the property lobby in Toronto that you know of? Is there much of that sort of banter going about? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's people who are supportive of the the increase in supply of condos. However, there's from from what I know, a lot of them are so small that they're they're almost unlivable anyway because they're they're really small apartments. So you know, in some ways, that's great because it improve, increases density. But if if it means that actually the the market that's going to be buying those properties or renting those properties doesn't actually exist, you know, single people who want to live downtown, then they actually are not that useful in a way. So it's certainly interesting there. I think people are interested in this supply side stuff, but there's not really any data available in Toronto about who's living in these apartments and and that kind of thing. So would be an interesting thing to know for sure. And so they have, uh, I've, I've heard it reference sort of these ghost towers in Toronto. Is that really what it's like where there's some, you know, one or two people living in a tower sort of thing? And are there many of those sort of news stories floating around or is um, that a bit of a fisherman's tale I might have heard? Uh, I mean, I can't say for sure. I'm not certainly not an expert in the Toronto housing market. I think Probably in Vancouver, that does seem to happen a bit as well. And maybe that's a a kind of story that tends to come across to Toronto as well. In Vancouver, they have a bit more data on that kind of thing. But in Toronto, there's, there's really not anything. So it is hard to tell who's, who's living and if people are living in these, in these buildings. I mean, I think ghost town would be a stretch, but I, I certainly, it would be interesting to know if they're full or not because my, inkling is that that they're probably not. It, it is kind of crazy though, isn't it, that we have all this emphasis on housing. I mean, I look at my uh, five-year-old twins and uh, all they draw about are houses. You know, that's the first thing they'll draw and it's just entrenched in our psyche that we need somewhere to live. And here you are in, you know, one of the wealthiest countries in Canada and uh, you too are struggling for data on what's happening in your housing markets. And it's just surprising that there's not a better understanding of what's happening. One area I do know of in Canada that has been significantly tightened and may well be affecting your market is we call it here significant investment visas and it's for foreign investors and it allows investors to uh, put some $4 million into uh, the Australian asset market, whether that's the share market or some sort of uh, business you're investing in. You can't invest directly in real estate, but you can invest in real estate investment trusts. So uh, they're loving it, of course, having these significant investment visas, where if you hold this $4 million for a couple of years, you can basically jump the queue and get citizenship. So um, this, from what I understand, was uh, quite a um, 
a driver in the uh, housing market in um, Canada where you could actually buy directly into real estate. So it was in the year, last year or two that loophole got tightened and so now other countries are looking to cash in on all this uh, surplus uh, Chinese investment money that's looking for somewhere to park. And here in Australia, um, they're sliding around it with temporary residents, a.k.a. foreign students here are um, buying real estate up and, and that's soaking up some of that cash flow. But um, I wonder if you've heard any of those sort of stories as I put you on the spot here, Stephanie. <laughs> yeah, I have. I can't say I've heard of it specifically. I know there is a huge amount of Chinese investment in Vancouver specifically. I guess the, the geography of it in terms of how close it is to Asia relative to Toronto, I think it would probably happen there a lot more. It's probably also that curse of the world world's most livable city that Melbourne shares with Vancouver. <laughs> yes, exactly. Keep fighting over that one and the investors, I guess. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. And this week, we're, of course, discussing with Stephanie Melker, a postgrad student from the University of Toronto. So, Stephanie, you mentioned you're a planning student and I had an interesting meeting last year where I was told about the best practices for planning, particularly with condominium developments and Singapore seems to have some pretty good setups in terms of the way they allow multi-unit basically skyscrapers they ensure that bathrooms are a set distance apart from each other bedrooms are set distances there's certain wall thicknesses you can uh, fit a king-size bed and open your cupboard doors all those sort of planning requirements there uh, what sort of things are happening in the planning space that interest you uh, in the face of this incredible commodification of real estate where it seems that developers just want to churn out product to sell to these roaming uh, uh, investors uh, marauding around the planet? Well, I think in terms of planning and, and regulations in terms of development, yeah, developers are really interested in in making as much money as possible regardless of who they're serving so long as someone's going to buy their property, whether that be someone local or a foreign investor or whoever, they're, they're into, they're, that's their key interest, which, you know, is – the name of their game. So that's that's kind of fine. But in terms of, of planning, there are still regulations in place were developed a, quite a long time ago. So in terms of requirements for parking and that kind of thing is, you know, when you look at the data now about how many young adults are interested in owning a car, it's much less than it used to be. And so having to have at least one car parking space for every apartment. And then in addition to, I think, I think in Toronto it's half a car parking space in addition for visitors and that kind of thing. Like it's out of, it's really out of date. And so that prevents developers from being able to make the money and provide a good service or a good apartment to, to someone, whereas they just have to have to make the money and or want to make the money. They can't then also have density and good properties at the same time, if that makes sense. So I think by adjusting regulations like parking, secondary dwelling units and that kind of thing on on single unit properties could make a really big difference in the development world in terms of providing housing that is that is livable and not at such a high density that people don't want to live there or so small that 
that a family couldn't couldn't live in those properties or even a couple couldn't really live in those properties. So the planning regulations are in desperate need of being updated. Developers do have a lot of challenges to deal with and sure, plenty of them are probably trying to do the right thing, but they've got planning delays as well. And that's one of the big criticisms here is that it takes so long to get things approved that uh, by the time you've got the, the product all designed and architected up, it then sits for 18 months. And who knows, maybe uh, the market's changed in that time and you really can't go and alter your demographic mix within that apartment layout. Uh, are there any of the other sort Sort of issues along those lines where you sort of can feel sympathy for developers and understand why it might be frustrating. I'm not sure I'm all that sympathetic to developers, but uh, <laughs> um, I think that I think your point about it taking such a long time between applying for a development permit and and getting it and being able to start building is actually a huge, well, m- one of the factors in this kind of fight against housing affordability because not only does it take a long time and perhaps the market's changed, but they also have to pay for someone to be, I guess, sitting on that file and managing that file and liaising with the council and the council has to pay someone to be liaising with the developer. And so that puts the price up and and that price is always going to be passed on to the consumer in the end. The developer's not never going to take that on themselves. They're just going to say, well, we'll just add this to the to the per unit cost of, of our development development at the at the end and we won't have to pay for it ourselves. So I think a more efficient system would certainly be beneficial in terms of housing affordability in addition to all those other small things like secondary units and parking requirements and I mean there's a there's a whole number of planning regulation kind of adjustments or reform that could be made to make housing more affordable in terms of supply yeah. Well let's step Back in time then to your world in in the homelessness field, what would have been it you know something you wouldn't have expected in that world of homelessness that uh, listeners here on the beloved three CR Airways might go wow geez that that's something that these people working in homelessness services have to address and really need help on. Uh, I think. One of the things I worked in housing and homelessness here in Melbourne for between four and five years before I moved to Toronto. And one of the things that really developed over that time that that really happened alongside a worsening housing affordability climate here in Melbourne was that we were starting to see people who had never been homeless before, were never really at risk of homelessness before and who were turning up on on the doorstep of our service and saying, well, we're in rent arrears and we can't afford to pay and we actually have nowhere to go unless we move way out into the suburbs, which the consequences of that were then, well, then we have to buy a car or or pay more in petrol and so it doesn't actually make economic sense for me to keep my part-time job and send the kids to childcare two days a week because it's it's becomes totally unaffordable. So, I guess we were seeing that that this housing affordability is is really pushing people who were never at risk of homelessness before, in terms of I guess a lot of people who experience homelessness, especially when they're younger, might have you know might have mental health issues or drug drug and alcohol. Health um, issues or family violence issues, that, those kind of things. Like they're, they're very much historically have been people who have been more at risk of homelessness previously, whereas now there's more and more people who just can't afford to pay and that that's why they're homeless, which is, 
yeah, it's awful really. And it's not only is it awful for them, it's awful for the people who do have mental health and drug and alcohol issues because they're now jostling for position in the homelessness system with people who shouldn't even be close to being homeless in any way. So it makes it far worse for everyone. That's on our 40,000 plus public housing waiting list. And you're saying it's not even the the chance of uh, unemployment that's sending people your way. It's just the fact that uh, this increased casualization of the workforce, probably some of that leads to uh, marriage breakups and then the single mom or dad uh, has to come and see a, a homeless service. And uh, yeah, I imagine the um, the stretch on resources there must be just immense. And so what would happen as winter approaches and, and people start saying, heck, I just can't have my family in the car anymore. We've got to do something different. Where would you guys turn when that happens? Well, there's there's a number of emergency services in Melbourne where people can go for short-term accommodation. My recent experience in Toronto has been a real eye-opener for me in terms of homelessness. I have to say I found it incredibly difficult and uh, heartbreaking, not nearly as difficult as the people who are actually homeless. But, you know, in, in Toronto this winter it got down to minus 23 and, you know, like I guess in Melbourne it's it's awful in in winter to be homeless in Toronto you're you're probably not going to survive if you're outdoors in winter. So it's uh yeah, it's a really different situation over there and, and there are then different services. You know, there's there's warming centres over there and that kind of thing where people can go when it when it's really, really cold. Unfortunately they're not open all the time. I'm not not really haven't really been able to figure out why yet. <laughs> I guess it costs a lot of money, which is um a shame. But here, you know, in Melbourne, it's, it is a lot milder. And I think in some ways it becomes less urgent then, you know, if, if you, if you're homeless in Toronto in winter, then you need to be indoors. If you're homeless here in Melbourne, it's going to be very uncomfortable. And I think that becomes a bit of a, an excuse or, or, you know, it it's makes it a bit easier to, to push to the side as a real, as a real problem but it certainly needs dealing with it's it's not enjoyable to be in out in the cold overnight in July in in Melbourne that's for sure we met through your interest in our speculative vacancies report and this is where we're hinting about the need for data and so you're saying that Whilst there is this expenditure on these warming rooms and warming spaces, that's uh, important, but we don't have the data on what's happening with vacant housing. So then it makes it that little bit more difficult to point towards the need to put some competitive pressure on these empty homes, which is where a land value tax comes in. So... um, how am I going to get myself out of this question? I don't know. But it was interesting to hear that your researchers in the University of Toronto thought that was an interesting measure. And, um, yeah, I'd love to see it picked up somewhere else around the world. So um, 
what do you see as the major stumbling blocks to getting uh, a, a vacancy measure that uses water consumption as a proxy for uh, empty housing? Well, I would love to do this study as part of my master's program over there. I um, have asked about whether the water data, usage data is available. I haven't had any luck so far. I've been told that it's that it's not available. I think here we've been on a smart meter system for a bit longer than they have in Toronto. So perhaps that's got something to do with it. I'm not sure yet whether it's just that I haven't spoken to the right people. I, I certainly feel like if the data is there, then it's a doable report. So yeah, I've got my fingers crossed that, that I can get access to it and can, yeah, do a report for Toronto about this idea of speculative vacancies. And if it does happen there, if it doesn't, great a little bit because it doesn't happen and it must be a different problem and we'll have to try and figure it out if it does happen well at least you know you can put your finger on it and try and figure out a solution yeah well when i think back here we were doing it before smart meters as well but you would think that with smart meters it would be even easier and uh, wouldn't it be nice to see uh, the snazzy new data.vic.gov.au website incorporating these data sets so we don't actually have to go out and um, collate this information and i'm just thinking of you in toronto with some 16 million residents you have uh, you know six to seven million water readings to collate. Hopefully the utility there would collate them into postcodes and you would then just have to work through those two or 300 postcodes and, and the various data sets within those. But yeah, it's surprising that not other municipalities and, and housing advocacy bodies around the world have picked up on this measure because it, it needs... We've been trying to get the Australian Bureau of Stats to take it on board, but of course they've got huge budget cutbacks. It's just immense. So uh, years and years of cutting back the public service is really starting to have an effect. And some of uh, uh, my listeners will remember the interviews I did with Dr. Michael Varden on the Australian Environmental Economic Accounting System. This was the world-leading environmental indicator uh, for true cost economics sort of thing. And, of course, when Tony Abbott came to town, um, uh, uh, that program was quickly shut down. So um, uh, through the ABS, we're seeing the um, yearbook get cold as well. And uh, there's talk at the state level to privatise the land titles office. So whilst we've got this open data movement happening, the data that we really need to look in at uh, wealth inequality seems to be locking down in a way. And I just wonder whether you might have noticed any similar sort of trends with your conservative government. Uh, has there been publicly available data, um, maybe in the mining sphere with all of the uh, fracking going on there? It's um, very interesting to see some of the graphs that are coming out now comparing the Canadian Stock Exchange top 500 companies and then looking at the, the fracking oil companies and, and the the returns are dismal for those frackers. But uh, I just wonder what's what's going on there to um, in this, this world of data transparency. In Toronto, the, the most recent development in Toronto that happened, I think a little bit before I arrived, was the cutting of the long-form census there, which has been huge for planners because that's where all the data comes from. Or the, the long-form household survey, I think it's called. But it's been a huge, huge blow because 
yeah, all this data that used to exist now no longer is even collected because of budget cuts and it was too complicated and it's not beneficial enough and, yeah, it's it's really a shame because without that kind of data it makes it really hard to do things, especially in a world that's so, you know, quantitative data is we're so we so heavily rely on it to prove things you know we, we always need to prove that something's happening and but then the very people who say they need approved then cut the the data collection method so it's um it seems kind of crazy so that's you know there's certainly the climate of that in Toronto as well that data is is hard to get get a hold of I didn't mention that, that here the Australian census has been cut from world's best practice every five years to now every 10 years. Uh, are you saying that in Canada it's it's not even happening every 10 years? I didn't realise that the census had been made only every 10 years here. So that's really interesting and I'm sure lots of planners and lots of people who are interested in, in lots and lots of different things will be, uh, you know, pretty disappointed about that, which is which is a shame. It makes it a lot harder. You've got your interest in land value tax. What do you think we need to do to get some movement towards some deep-seated reform? I really think my experience so far has been that I was quite intimidated by economics before this year. So, and I was always like, oh, economics, I don't think I know how that works or I don't know what that is and, and kind of Never, never really read up about it because I was a bit scared about it, scared that I wouldn't understand it. Uh, but this year I've really tried to put some effort into understanding it and have kind of come to realise that it's not actually all that complicated when you, when you put your mind to it. So I think just getting people to understand, you know, simple as supply and demand price kind of stuff, that that's how it works and that housing, housing works that way and the impact that a land value tax would have on that. It doesn't have to be complicated necessarily. And so I think just educating people and teaching people about basic economics and how it works would would be extremely beneficial. And so there we have Stephanie Melker from the University of Toronto, a postgrad there in planning. So great to hear some on-the-ground reports from, uh, yeah, another... Anglosphere type nation, uh, world's best education, uh, very well endowed with natural resources, uh, should have it all. But uh, just seeing online there that forty-two uh, percent of people who own their sec who are buying their second home in Canada need the bank of mum and dad to buy it. So that's how over-the-top housing prices are in Canada. And uh, it was great to hear from Stephanie, who I put on the spot to uh, jump on this week's radio show, and she was a a good sport and joined us. So uh, let's hope that our speculative vacancies study goes international. I'd love you to share this show with someone you may have read about in the planning or municipal rating or housing affordability sphere somewhere on this planet because really it's about time that all these millions and millions of empty homes uh, you know double triple the number of empty homes to homeless people throughout Europe they have to put up with incredible uh, temperature drops over winter but still policymakers are allowed to go lazy and oh my voice rises when I see the policy fraud in the UK election coming through what's his name Ed Miller 
Miliband, the Labour opposition leader, has announced that he's going to uh, give first homeowners a stamp duty discount. That's uh, the sort of fraud that uh, former Victorian Premier Dennis Napthine imposed here, where he said, look, instead of paying the government some stamp duty, uh, let's pull that away and we'll pretend that'll make it affordable. But really, you still have to compete with foreign investors. You still have to compete with negative gearers. So instead of that money going to the government, as inefficient as stamp duty is, um, we're going to give you a a 50% discount. And instead of that coming to uh, pay for schools and roads, we're going to um, send that money towards uh, the banking system uh, to fatten up their profits even more. So goodness me, uh, yeah, we've been around a hundred odd years uh, slash thousands of years. This this form of analysis where we believe we all should have an equal right to the Earth's bounty by doing so, it reduces the profiteering on the planet, and uh, we can actually cut. Dare I say it, income taxes and company taxes and channel the property bubble away from the banking system and towards towards government. So uh, if only we had a representative democracy, that would be good. That is why we need the boldness. Finn and Daniel are in the house. So uh, watch out, 3CR listeners. Uh, Thanks very much for listening to today's Renegade Economist. My name is Carl Fitzgerald. And uh, make sure you check out the show notes each and every week at earthsharing.org.au. Get in touch via renegades at earthsharing.org.au. All right. people out there in the radio world show some love to 3cr you know and if you're listening and enjoying the programs here yeah, man great radio station it is how how it was built by community and the community ownership and that's a powerful thing to have within community so show some love show some support and please subscribe from the north to the south to the east to the west let the baller take you home island style represent your soul to the flow love your set represent raise your pride to the sky love it like it's the best my power bring, bring it back home love. 